This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 54, recorded on March 11th, 2019. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, we'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. Actually, just better to email that guy over there. Do Christian, it. At Do the average it. guy. He's really the brains behind the operation. I think it's Pinky and the Brain over there. <laughs> you can send him an email, Christian at the average guy.tv. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Collison or follow Christian out there at Board Whisperer. The average guy.tv, of course, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. For more information and some great web hosting, as little as 10 bucks, uh, a site, Maple Grove Partners. Dot com. And if you haven't checked out the new theme we got going on at the average guy.tv, super fast, by the way, just super clean. Yeah. Keep it simple, keep it clean, keep it crisp, kind of like seven up. Oh, I wonder if I could say that again. <laughs> We're going to have a YouTube violation. YouTube, please. <laughs> We're going to have a YouTube violation on that one for sure. So head out to the average guy.tv. Let me know what you think. Uh, I did that over the weekend, I think maybe last weekend. And uh, it's all set and ready for you. If you haven't subscribed, do that as well. Christian's back. Christian, you've been traveling. What have you been up to? Yeah, I've been traveling out to RSA. Um, another another year bites the dust at the RSA conference. We had over 42,000 in attendance. And I don't know, every year I go and do the expo part of RSA, it always seems bigger. I, I haven't decided if it's an illusion like daylight savings time that continues to, you know, give me um, mental reservations 20, you know, 20 some years and counting. And, um, it was just the expo was huge. I mean, uh, all sorts of cross industry, um, sex sections represented this year, but also, uh, pretty good tracks this year. I, I was, you know, one of the things about RSA that is interesting for someone who's deep into smelling cybersecurity things is that RSA is very much, it is the only conference in the world that's held where you get all of industry in one spot. When we talk about other cybersecurity conferences like DEF CON or Black Hat, you're getting very different sex, for lack of a better word, for who's going out there, right? Um, DEF CON is everything from white hat, black hat, somewhere in the middle, um, anonymous people showing up cash at the door, et cetera. It's not really a place where industry comes and plants themselves and tries to sell you their latest enterprise cybersecurity solution, et cetera. You're also not going to see, you know, VPs of major fortune 500 companies getting up on stage and giving presentations. So it's a very different format, very different style. Um, and yet the tracks are always interesting because they remind me very much of DEF CON Black Hat in some respects. Like if you want to go and get that dive deep technical readout on whatever the latest cyber thing is that tickles your fancy, you can go and do that. Um, but they also have a lot um, more diverse um, selection to choose from in terms of other tracks. So for example, uh, one of the talks that I absolutely love this year was on quantum computing and demystifying some of the common misconceptions on what quantum computing does and doesn't promise for us. Um, and obviously, we find that at a cybersecurity conference because quantum has long been predicted as something that will, you know, break encryption algorithms. So there is security relevance, but they spent a lot of the talk just going over fundamentals of quantum computing that is much more 
like a computer science conversation. Uh, shouldn't probably use the word straightforward in the sense that the material was dense, but they really brought it to a high level so that at the you walked away with something no matter what your experience level was with the ability to interpret the talk. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, but always kind of the RSA uh, executive highlight feel and the keynote sessions, right, where you're getting CEOs and VPs and, um, you know, senior industry representation. I think that's something that's very unique about the RSA conference every year. And we get a lot of diversity of thought in how people are approaching problems. And when you get tired of sitting down or going to a keynote or a track, you can walk through the, you know, the large zoo known as the expo, which takes up two entire bottom floors of two separate uh, conference center facilities that make up Monscone um, North and South. And the combination of those two kind of is the whole expo room floor. And I mean, you name it, every company under the sun, pretty much there trying to show how they have the, the, the best solution or want you to think they have the best solution for your uh, security woes. So very interesting uh, year again, uh, but the conference always has had that element of there's something there for everyone. Um, we also obviously have uh, the RSA college day experience and we have security scholars. So they do a lot to engage academia as much as they do industry at this conference. So uh, a lot of voices at the conference for sure. To see anybody we know, I know there's some maybe some past yeah. guests oh, yeah. from Cyber Frontiers yeah, on there. Yeah, yeah, we had some uh, University of Maryland uh, mini class reunions there with uh, some of the Aces guys out there as heavy hitters. Um, continue to get representation from former guests. Uh, back to show number five, I want to say, from going off memory when uh, we had. Franz Payer come on and give a overview, of, which was the company they uh, co-founded out of their dorm in uh, college. And uh, they're still running with that company. It's still getting bigger, uh, cyberskyline.com. And they were out there at RSA engaging with industry uh, representatives and leaders, just like everyone else in the game. So very cool to see. You don't have anything uploading or downloading, do you? I'm getting a little a little jittery from you. I hope not. No. Okay. Uh, right. Well, maybe somebody's hacked be, you. I should be you've the been, only thing streaming. <laughs> you, you've been hacked. Yes. Uh, Christian, let's talk. Uh, you you want to start off your five most dangerous new attack techniques when we think about them. I was watching a YouTube video last night of of a you know kind of a cyber expert going through all the way movies and TVs depict. You know, mm. cyber events, right? And the guy is just ripping it to shreds, right? All these yeah. pop-ups and people typing fast and some of those kinds of things. So let's talk about reality. As we think about the how folks are going about this right now, what are kind of the five most popular or dangerous ways how, and how are we countering them? Yeah, so part of my intent for tonight, too, is just to kind of give you a broad spectrum of some of the highlights that I enjoyed from the conference and hopefully give you a taste of what some of the focal content was. One of them for sure was what are the five most dangerous attack techniques um, that we're seeing and how to counter them. And this was a panel uh, run by folks at the Sands Institute, had um, cross affiliations with different companies, of course, that's part of the Sands kind of course model, but really a nice one-hour synopsis. I highly recommend going and watching the YouTube video. I won't do it full justice, but I think I'll be able to provide you a kind of high-level synthesis of what that panel is about. Um, but if you go out to that link, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, this is a keynote session, so it's 
publicly available on YouTube, no problem getting to it um, without any prior attendance to the conference. But yeah, top five uh, most dangerous attack techniques. I would say of the five on here, um, two I've really kind of increased in my forefront where I haven't talked about them as much on the show and um, hadn't become as familiar with them. I think um, I had probably heard or seen cases in passing, but really had not studied it to the level that the panel goes into detail. Uh, so I definitely wanted to bring it up here tonight. The first one is really on domain name system mischief. So this is one that I've always known about. I've always known it was you know possible to do. There's plenty of examples of it, but it was interesting to me that it was in their top five. So the the premise here is that attackers are very focused now on compromising infrastructure credentials. So what do I mean by infrastructure? I mean, things that you use to do your job or run your business or run your website. So for example, um, I'm an attacker and I love the average guy so much that I want to start hosting subsequent podcast episodes. So I need to figure out how to take ownership of the average guy.tv. Well, I'm going to start profiling, looking for where Jim hosts his website, hosts his DNS, and try to figure out how can I get into Jim's domain control panel so that I can compromise his credentials, get access to his DNS, and then start doing whatever the malicious activity is. In this case, some of the popular malicious activities would be changing the DNS record for where email goes, right? So if I know that Jim is commonly getting email at jim at guy.tv and I want to start inspecting what that email is, I don't have to hack the mail server, so to speak, I can change the DNS record to point to my own mail server so that I could intercept any messages that he's getting in um, through that domain name. I might also want to use the privilege I have in the DNS records now to issue myself my own SSL certificate that says I am the average guy.tv. And when I go to someplace like a Komodo where it's a simple email verification for them to believe that I am the authoritative user of the average guy.tv. I can now create myself my own new green shiny SSL certificate that all the browsers will trust in saying I am in fact the average guy.tv. And then there's very little left to do in terms of I've completely um, recreated and stood myself up as the average guy.tv entity. I've done some data exfiltration and I've had to do zero things to actually attack the infrastructure that the DNS points to. I'm really just attacking the DNS itself and using the trust model that's inherent in the way we've done internet architecture in order to get get about what I want. So, I mean, I think these things are obvious to many cybersecurity practitioners. I think this particular scenario is maybe also average to a lot of the average uh, guy listeners, but the fact that it was brought up there so much in the forefront to me says that folks at the SANS Institute are seeing specific data points that make them think that this is an increased uh, attack trend or problem that we're seeing um, in industry. Uh, apparently, this has also been extensively covered in different shapes or forms with uh, Brian Krebs's website, Krebs on Security. So a lot of data points kind of running the gamut for um, for this particular attack vector and what was surprising to me only in the sense that it was the very first thing that came out of their top five list. Yeah. Um, could So... F- do you feel using the average guy.tv 
with what we have out there? You feel, you feel pretty confident like something like that couldn't happen? Have you? I mean, I don't want to be a boastful individual. No, but, no, I'm just saying. Know. But well, you've put most of the things in place, right? Yeah, right. But it's the, it's the same concept, right? Like if I'm your infrastructure provider, right? And there's no guarantees on if the infrastructure provider is the right. same as the DNS provider, right? It's really like it's it, in many scenarios equally up to the customer to ensure that they are properly securing accounts that that relate in any way to their infrastructure. So not necessarily securing accounts on the infrastructure itself, but you know, I'm using the word like a DNS registration system or like where I'd go to buy a domain name. People wouldn't traditionally think of that in their minds as an infrastructure account, right? It's not hosting anything other than these DNS records, right? Um, some of the defenses really here are things we've talked and known about on this show. Use two-factor so that I can't brute force guess your password at, you know, namecheap.com and have access to your domain name. The other interesting one that I think is more of an enterprise focus is implement the DNSSEC uh, standard, which really ensures that you are using certificate-based um, secure DNS query request response, and you're ensuring that DNS transactions are fully locked down in a secure way. Um, and then obviously, if you've had a, a bogus certificate get out through some type of related mechanism, make sure if you're a large industry or organization, you have reviewed all your certificates that are actively issued and revoke any ones that you know to be suspicious. Yeah, I mean, I have two-factor turned on with with the with the provider uh, or the, the DNS provider, right? Um, right so we got that lock part locked down. I know you've got everything secure from an, from an infrastructure standpoint. What else? What other what other um, what other areas do they have there? Yeah. So the second one was my favorite one out of the five, uh, particularly because we've never talked about it on the show. And part of me wanted to spend a whole show on it. The other part of me continues to question whether I will do that. But it's a concept called domain fronting, and so domain fronting is basically. I, the attacker, want to hide my badness and the malicious things I'm doing behind known trusted entities. And what that's going to allow me to do is build an end-to-end -end command and control capability that is going through known trusted providers. So then when my network defense and my information security practitioners are trying to defend the network, they don't recognize me as anything malicious because to them, I just look like another trusted entity. So let me set this up for you. Today, in most of Web 3.0, as I'm calling it, we rely heavily on the usage of content delivery networks. This essentially means that I might have a website or a fleet of web servers that are using um, common infrastructure to load my main site, my main interactions, et cetera. But I'm going to load assets like images or compiled JavaScript or things that are pertinent to loading my my business applications resource, but need to be highly available and highly distributed with low latencies, I'm going to put them on a content delivery network because what that delivery network is going to take care of is taking the version of whatever that file is, federating it through repositories all throughout the world. So when that I, Joe Schmo, go to myapplication.com, I'm getting that content served, quote unquote, locally from the nearest point on the internet where I can fetch it from. 
right? Rather than traveling all the way to whatever the server is that is the origin point and putting that origin server under load because it has to deal with all connections as opposed to dealing with the connections that initiate business transactions and then opening up parallel but separate connections for your browser that retrieve content that actually builds the web page. So TLDR there, if you didn't fully follow it, is that we need CDN services in the modern era. Without them, makes it very hard to run enterprise applications at scale. We see CDN services being run in large-scale cloud environments where enterprise put a lot of trust in cloud environments, right? So to me, if I'm going and I'm visiting a, a domain name that is representative of a content delivery network, my computer by default is going to have a certificate that trusts that domain name because it's a well-known, globally established content delivery network. Well, all these CDNs support TLS, and that provides us our our SSL certificate, our secure session, et cetera. As a result, when my secure trusted application is making requests to fetch assets from the CDN service, I, the person inspecting my privileged network behind the perimeter, I don't know what specific um, place the inner TLS packet may be trying to get me to go to, right? I can see a host name where the TLS packet is going out to, right? I can see a source and a destination when I inspect TLS traffic, but I can't actually see the contents itself. Remember that those contents are encrypted. Well, in the HTTP 1.1 specification, there's this concept of a host header. And a host header is something that your browser interprets when it receives the packet that says, hey, go to this host. If that host doesn't match the actual host that I'm transiting to, my browser is going to redirect to that content automatically by using that HTTP 1.1 host header. So as a result, I, the malicious attacker, if I've compromised a known system in your network that you trust, that known system that you trust in your network uses a CDN. And when I'm inspecting traffic to make sure I haven't been compromised, all I see is my known trusted application reaching out to my known trusted CDN provider. Well, in reality, because the attacker is assumed to have compromised that good system that we trust in our enterprise, the attacker has also put his malicious resources in the same CDN service I trust. So now we're talking about attackers hiding in the same CDN or the same infrastructure where my enterprise has chosen to do business and trust. So if I'm the attacker and I have control to manipulate the data coming out of this trusted application, my mechanism to ensure that I go undetected is to mail form my TLS packets so that I'm going to the thing on my CDN, my, you know, my service with that CDN provider instead of the enterprise's CDN. And as a result, as soon as I get that packet and that customer redirected to my CDN, I have a little pointer resource on my CDN that sends it to the actual attacker server. And so what I've ended up doing is building this four-step chain from trusted web application behind the firewall, trusted in the enterprise, to the trusted CDN provider that my web application normally uses, to the attacker's resources on the same CDN company that I'm trusting as an enterprise, 
to the final destination of the attacker's origin server where they can do data exfiltration and command and control. So what I've done at the end of this is create a end-to-end -end link where I can do the command and control and the data exfiltration. And from any security practitioner doing network packet inspection, everything looks fine. It doesn't look like the box has been compromised. I don't see any unusual connections because the only connection I see is to my known trusted um, CDN provider. And you know we pay them lots of money to do CDN, so everything must be fine there. In order to actually uproot and find a vulnerability, I would need to have another mechanism that alerts me to either an anomalous traffic pattern or... I've inspected some running process on the host and it's clear from a deeper level analysis of that host has been compromised in some way. But oftentimes when you're in this large enterprise environment, your method of looking at your attack surface and ensuring that you're secure when you're dealing with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of hosts and infrastructure, you're going to, you're going to watch network. That's the laziest thing you can do is watch the packets flying across the wire. It's a lot cheaper than sitting there and you know, doing analysis on a host by host case. So this is really powerful. I definitely understand why they have this on the top five because the mitigations I don't think are uniform across enterprise yet for, well, how do you deal or how do you really detect with domain fronting? Um, they brought up one really good tool that uh, is called RITA, uh, Real Intelligence Threat Analytics. It's a free tool uh, for anyone to use. I have not used it yet, so I can't speak to it, but it essentially, um, looks at some of those traffic patterns that I was discussing earlier and is looking specifically for beacons that may indicate command and control-like functionality um, may be taking place on the network. So end-to-end -end domain fronting, I definitely 100% agree. Very dangerous attack vector for enterprises that aren't looking out for this yet and don't have the mechanisms to actually inspect and know if it's a technique being used in their network. So is this something we're I'm something we're seeing today a lot of, or is this just kind of a kind of early warning? No, I, I the the understanding is that this is being seen quite frequently in the in the types of um, you know kind of cyber forensics that's being done and across the enterprise. So I think it's getting more prevalent because the counter mechanisms are not as strong as the mechanism itself right now. So still, I think it's still kind of open. Right. Yeah, I think this is just it's one of those things where there's not necessarily a fundamental breakage in any one protocol. It's more just because of the way we have decided to build the trust model of the Internet. This kind of lets us get away with this. Um, and this speaks to one of the larger themes in all five of the most dangerous attack techniques. And it's a theme that's become very prevalent in the security industry is that. We've spent so much time driving people towards SSL, SSL, encrypt everything, end-to-end, -end, encrypt everything, secure transactions, trust the certificate. Well, the flip side of that is that it's now made it very, uh, very much so more difficult for enterprises to properly do the level of uh, network inspection that they ordinarily would do, right? So things we used to take for granted, like, oh, DNS is up in the clear. Well, no, now if you're encrypting your DNS, we're going to encrypt there, we're going to encrypt your web traffic. Before you know it, we've gotten so much of the payload encrypted that if anyone standard decides they're going to do something that's in the encrypted part as opposed to the plain text part, I can keep chaining these things as the attacker to get to a point where I'm operating over completely trusted infrastructure, completely trusted RFC specifications, but ultimately doing something that's malicious. Now, the underlying assumption here is that there was some vulnerability that allowed you to get on that compromised system in the first place 
undetected. That's the assumption. But when we talk about um, days it takes for companies to know they're breached, right? On average, um, that trend has gone down quite substantially from sometimes hundreds of days to I think 72 days is now the average. Um, so much lower than than what it was in the past. But the the reality here still is that if I do have an exploit active in my hand as the attacker, I now have more mechanisms than I ever have before to look trustworthy, even though it's completely bogus. And that has snowballed in the advent of forcing people onto SSL and other mechanisms. It it really has provided more cover for them to Hmm. act maliciously. And also with secure shared, um, enterprise scale cloud computing, now that we're moving to converged models of computing across local enterprise resources and remote enterprise resources, if, you know, the premise of domain fronting here, if you, the enterprise, are blindly trusting your provider and not doing some type of content verification, um, it allows for a very successful avenue to go undetected for large periods of time. Kind of, kind of reminds me of a train with no windows. It leaves the station. You don't know what's inside of it. You know it's going to get somewhere. It's very secure. It goes into the tunnel. It's compromised in the tunnel. Nobody sees it happen. Absolutely, right? yeah. And then things are happening. It comes out of the tunnel. It looks just fine. Yeah. And uh, and you're assuming it's hey, this is super secure. We, we've put a lot of trust and faith that that armor or whatever, the locks are going to stop people. Well, it didn't for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, so that, does that depend? So these CDNs, are they beginning to pick up their own, you know, their own security to kind of knowing this is happening or, or are they, are they working on it? I mean, CDNs can be responsible by, ensuring that they're not hosting malicious content, right? Mm -hmm. The trick with that is, well, what do you define as malicious? If the CDN itself isn't actually hosting the attacker's malicious resource, it's just acting as a forward proxy to wherever the attacker is ultimately trying to get you to go to, then it can be very hard for a large enterprise provider to, to, you know, strike down that customer's use, right? Forensically, let's say someone finds out in the enterprise, this was the bad resource. Sure, you can file an abuse report and I'm sure the CDN will take it down. But in terms of proactively discovering it before the resource is able to be deployed, um, that's a very hard challenge, um, especially when, you know, part of why we trust these providers is that they are being respectful of the customer data. They're not, you know, blindly inspecting. So it's a it's a very fine line to walk. And I think in terms of the mechanism, I think the beaconing approach is kind of the very right approach, right? Look for the traffic pattern, not necessarily the content hosted itself, because the way the attackers are using the CDN, um, the actual content on the CDN is somewhat meaningless or hard to unpackage it is much more the patterns of how the cdn is visited that might give you better statistical forensic inference on what's going on so in my example it's we've gotten lazy because we were looking at the outside of the train that mm-hmm. looks the same right looks yeah. same uh we're going to probably have to do a better job of inspecting what's actually happening inside the train is that well right? yeah the other case though is um maybe you know that that train only is supposed to leave at 6 a.m. and 5 p.m. every day, but sometimes, you know, once a month, you see it leaving at 4 a.m. on a Sunday, right? That should 
you know, one time, okay, maybe it's a maintenance run. Two times, oh, huh, that's kind of odd. Three times, okay, there's definitely an anomaly in this train schedule. I need to take a look. Yeah, that's a good, good way of saying it. Hey, are we still, you know, are one of these surface areas, is it still the individual? I mean, yeah, uh, right on. Know? Yeah. So, and, and they spent a whole, so that was like topic three is like humans, we still suck. Um, what a surprise. <laughs> um, and it was really talking about weak access rec- uh, controls, weak ability to recover um, and get in back into your accounts. Um, things we've talked about on the show before, really broad dissemination of your personal information such that when I want to reset your bank's password and I know that your, your first dog was Freddie because you told me that on Facebook and posted a picture of Freddie and, you know, <laughs> Your high school alma mater was the, you know, uh, the, the big green doors because, you know, y- y- that that's what you wrote in your bio. And, it, you know, those types of things where it's it's the weak access, it's the lack of review and locking things down. And so it was a, it was a very nice summary, though. I um, mean, I think one of the things that I've talked about in the show a couple of times, it continues to serve as a strong reminder. Um, take a look at using your cloud provider's data mechanisms. This has gotten a lot better with GDPR kind of scaring companies into this Uber level of compliance, right? Where, for example, if you use Google services a lot, you can go to myactivity.google.com. You now have fine-grained notches over which services are collecting and storing your data in relation to your account, how long they're storing it for. So, Really go in and lock that stuff down. Don't take it for granted um, and expect that you're just going to get around to it, right? Um, set a calendar reminder for yourself that every six months, you just go back into your most commonly used providers and review your privacy settings, review what data you're storing with them, be comfortable with um, what two-factor authentication. Maybe maybe a new provider has added two-factor authentication since you last used the service, and now you can use a hardware token instead of your cell phone, right? So these things are fluid, living, breathing things. Don't assess it at a static point in time and think you're good to go. I just change my password every day. That, that, that way I make it. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no. yeah that's a feature. Um, Wake up in the morning, change all your passwords. Yeah, the but that one over. was... Yeah. So that one was number three, very thematic though. Not, not very detailed like domain fronting. Um, and the, the, the last two I'll, I'll keep kind of high level, right? One was around um, kind of recursive DNS servers. And basically if you're, if you want to look for malware, you want to look where that transit is between your enterprise and the endpoint that you're connecting to, because that recursive DNS lookup, that's where you're going to always see if malware is, is, a foot in negotiating some type of man in the middle scenario. Um, you also want to look at the flip side of that, which is what connections on a host are only IPs, meaning it's not using any kind of DNS lookup. Cause if you're in the enterprise and you see a client doing like a straight IP to IP connection, that's super spooky. Like that in and of itself is, is, a, is a sign that either you have a very specific use case or something's not using DNS and likely is very much malware. Um, this topic though, talk, we kind of talked about it earlier, which is why I don't want to spend too much time on it, but this notion of DNS over HTTPS is now bad for network security monitoring and management because we used to constantly rely on DNS logs to better understand where flows of data were going through without doing packet inspection. And now that, um, DNS is increasingly moving over to HTTPS, like the rest of the world wide web, um, 
we find that this is less of a practical mechanism for the enterprise to leverage. And the last theme is really um, pretty specific to um, what we've talked about in the show quite extensively last year, which is CPU flaws. And we have dedicated a whole show in the past to Spectre and Meltdown. In fact, we probably have two shows on it. Um, so you know these have been ongoing things. Um, even today, we still talk about new variants of Spectre that are out there, right? So not a fully resolved problem. Um, but there are other types of chips that the presenter called out, right? There's uh, BMC chips, there's IPMIs, there's Drax, there are a bunch of these other types of embedded chips and devices that we trust um, that are part of our core infrastructure that um, don't get a lot of scrutiny. And so it was kind of more of like a FYSA, like, yes, we have flaws in our main CPUs, but here's all these other chips that you don't even think about that are just as bad. Um, and the takeaway was really focus on removing unnecessary management utilities and remote administration capabilities that are unused by your organization. And also for the ones that are used, focus on um, how to actually administer those resources that you are going to use natively on the hardware. Do you think, are we through this hardware problem? No, 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 no. no. I don't think so. I think, I think we're through it for a time. Um, but when you think that Spectre and Meltdown, it took us close to 30 years to really detect that. And that was after decades of precedent for how we do classical computing. Um, I think now there's a much larger microscope in that domain of security than there ever has been before. Um, so I could be wrong, but I suspect that the larger scrutiny that now is posed by us finally stumbling over this 40 years later tells me that we could be in for some more surprises in this area that I think um, it's naive to assume that now that we had this one big revelatory experience in 2018, that we have done full coverage of this um, because we got to where we did with Spectre and Meltdown because of the performance enabling capabilities we're providing computing, right? Well, as we continue to want to get faster and faster, there's going to be the newfangled thing that comes out in chip and silicon design at some point. And when that does, everyone's going to say, oh yeah, it's not susceptible to these things. We know about these things. Well, great. What do we not know about, right? And so I'm much more concerned about the unknown unknowns of future chipset designs that have yet to be actual hardware we can buy. Um, and I'm also concerned about the unknown unknowns of chips that we have today, which is what we got out of Spectre and Meltdown. Like, did we really get full coverage? And the continual drip of new Spectre variants across different hardware platforms tells me that um, this is going to be that kind of persistent nagging thing that's just going to be around. So get used to it. In terms of actual impact to the consumer, I expect it to continue to get lower and lower. I think the actual... Spectre and Meltdown themselves now probably have very low impact in terms of the ability to successfully use a RCA exploit on it. Um, but I don't think this is going away. I think this will be in the shadows for quite some time. Yeah. Anything else you'd add on that on that subject? No, I, like I said, it was one of my favorite panels just in the sense that it was a very nice kind of comprehensive wrap up in, in under an hour that got to these core issues. And I thought it was a very astute industry observation of some of the techniques that are going to be around for a while. 
Does it change any advice you give to people, I, the average consumer, the listeners of this show, so to speak? Did, did, it, did it change anything for you? No, in fact, it makes me feel pretty good about the advice I have given over the years. Um, I, I think some of the advice is spot on to at least uh, three of the five things mentioned here. Um, I think with respect to domain fronting, the advice that we have never discussed on the show is how do you identify and establish trust with your infrastructure providers? Um, and I think that is a ongoing conversation we should have on this show because I think it speaks to an enterprise audience that we may have not focused on in previous conversations. Um, I also think with respect to hardware, um, the guidance there is still somewhat nebulous, right? Um, there are things we can mitigate with, and we've talked about those mitigations extensively on the show, but I can't promise you that there is the one chip you can go and buy where you're never going to have to worry about these variants of attack vectors. So uh, we got out-of-box coverage on prior Cyber Frontier advice on three of the five, and I think uh, I, I would I would give us a... Uh, B plus rating on we've had pretty good coverage on four of the five issues on this panel. I think domain fronting was probably the biggest miss in terms of the cyber frontiers community, not having an active discussion about it before today. So this is my own uh, vulnerability patch to the show notes to uh, get our listeners up to date. You have, you have effectively patched the show. That's pretty Correct. great. That's yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. If you've ever thought about uh, your latest software patches coming in the form of uh, podcasts on your way to work or uh, show note documents. Um, super great. Yes. Yeah. You now super have it. Super great. You had led the show off with um, quantum computing, with the idea of quantum computing. One, is it ever really going to happen? I mean, we keep talking about <laughs> it, uh, right? <laughs> is, is it really going to happen? And then two, what kind of, like, what, if this actually does happen, and it, it probably will. But mm -hmm. if it actually does happen, it's got to have some ramifications on the way we do computing, right? So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So first, I just want to start off by this is one of the few tracks that um, uh, both of the presenters were um, Dell EMC. One was a fellowist, a uh, fellowist. One was a fellow and one was a, a security architect researcher, I think. But anyway, both both Dell EMC, both very astute. It was it was one of the highest re remarked presentations in my estimation because it was this really strange blend between I'm listening to people from industry, aka Dell, but they sounded like university professors in the way they presented their arguments. But there was still something there for the average guy, regardless of what your prior experience was. And that was like the holy grail of like, if I could get these two folks on a on a podcast and it call it Cyber Frontiers episode fifty five, um, the Dell EMC show, like they were spot on to this model of hybrid learnings and experience between academia and ind industry being very informative for general use case. So, total kudos to the presentation. I think I get a lot of questions just outside of the show and in general of, well, what do you think about quantum? Where are we going with quantum? It's a very Gartner buzzwordy kind of thing to be able to talk sexy about the qubits. Um, so this was a great topic because even if you weren't interested in it from a security angle, um, if you went in with no prior knowledge, you came out with demystifying a lot of the common um, quantum things that you hear from people. And you maybe learned a little bit of math along the way. Um, and you got a view of it that wasn't from a physicist. And there are certain folks that will yell at me for saying that, but 
Um, the value in that is that you get it from an engineering perspective. So I don't have to necessarily understand deep level physics to understand where we are currently in quantum computing. Certainly having a theoretical understanding of the underlying physics informs what quantum computing models look like. But if I can get a physicist to tell me that, I can tell you all the engineering implications as opposed to having to understand both one or the either or some combination. Um, so you kind of asked, I think one was how feasible this is, where are we headed with it? Yeah. Is it real? Yeah. <laughs> We've so been talking about it for a while. The answer is kind of not really. Um, obviously, we've seen a lot in the news about people who have invested in it, people who have started to build quantum computers, but there are a lot of practical blockers to this becoming the wide scale. You know, you're not going to have a laptop in 10 years running a quantum computer CPU. And let me tell you why. So I'm just going to kind of read out some of the common misconceptions and then I'll work my way back here. So number one, um, quantum computers are inherently slow and energy intensive. So the amount of energy and heat that is involved when processing and dealing with qubits is like exponentially worse than anything you've ever had to deal with um, in quantum computing. So you have to have that cool matter at 10 millikelvins in order to do computations, right? So good luck figuring out how to put that into a com consumer device, okay? Um, this is kind of an excerpted quote from their presentation. Um, to a first approximation with current known technology, quantum computers will be a million times slower and a trillion times less energy efficient than classical computers, um, accounting for things like quantum error correction and so forth. Um, so predictions on the spectrum of when a quantum computer would be able to break RSA as the holy grail encryption algorithm range from absolutely never to the year 2030. So again, energy levels that we're talking about to pull this off a nuclear power plant to run a quantum computer that could actually start to attack that problem. So in terms of feasibility of people who are getting all hot and bubbly about their classical zero and one CPU is somehow going to be replaced by qubits in 20 years. Um, I think it's totally nonsensical unless there's a either a fundamental changing in the understanding of the physics as we know it today, or a fundamental change in how we do manufacturing today. Um, and in the absence of seeing no data that suggests we're close to either of those realities, I would be much more on the side of never at this point than on the side of the year 2030, um, with the somewhere in the middle is being a looking for a centrist opinion, probably at least 200 years out in terms of some type of mainstream computing, right? But I want to kind of strike at the heart of what the misconception here is about quantum, right? Because I've told you about they're inherently slower and they're, they're pigs when it comes to energy, but that's not what you hear in the media. You hear the exact opposite. You hear, oh, well, with classical computers, I can store a zero or a one. So it's a binary operation. It's either on or it's off. And so my computational complexity is always two to the N. And in quantum, I can do exponentially more infinite computations because it's not a zero or one, it's a zero or a 0 0.43 or a 0 0.76. And what is the probability that I'm a zero or one now opens up these exponential states of computation on a per bit level. Um, so 
you know, that changes the operational complexity of this theoretical computer we're talking about to suddenly sound like we have a circuit that can operate on n qubits where there is up to two to the n superposed values um, that occur simultaneously. Um, and it really, it sounds like that. And it sounds like quantum computing is going to be some panacea extension to Moore's law. But in reality, um, there are a couple problems going on here. One, uh, quantum computers are not always faster than classical computers. In fact, to date, we found one use case that seems like maybe with the proper enhancements to the technology would become faster than um, classical models. The other thing is that by definition, this is super important, by definition, quantum computers are non-deterministic Turing machines. Well, what's a non-determinic Turing machine? Um, as the presenters annotate here, it's only a concept, right? So the concept of a non-deterministic Turing machine is that I can simultaneously or in exponential time compute something on a regular computer as if the regular computer could compute all branches at once, right? So in a classical computer model, think of like an if-else statement where I evaluate the if statement. If the if statement's true or it's false, then I go to another branch. We've done some level of parallelization and computing today by having multiple cores, multiple processing. So if I want to evaluate further down my program from where I'm currently executing at, I can start evaluating further parts of the program in another thread so that when I have figured out whether my if statement is true or false, I've already computed the values for both cases, whether it be true or false. This should sound familiar to you because we talked about it as the fundamental flaw behind Spectre and Meltdown. Um, what we're what we're positioning here in a non-deterministic Turing machine is that we can magically compute all branches in parallel because we have an infinite number of states to work with as opposed to zero or one. Um, not really practical for several reasons. Um, one of them being around what it takes to actually build a circuit that operates on a logical gate um, would have to be built out of a lot of onesie twosie qubit gates. So the actual running time of a circuit that is an n qubit gate um, has to be adjusted and taken into account. So just the circuit design and architecture of what a qubit circuit looks like versus a traditional classical computer circuit looks like, super unclear to me. You probably heard a lot of words in there that didn't make sense. I get about half of them every time I reread the same argument. So don't feel bad. Um, but here are things that the average guy definitely can smell much more readily. And so I'll talk about them. Um, next, you can't measure the qubits without losing the superposition of them. Well, what did I mean by that? I mean, as soon as I measure or try and understand the state of that quantum particle, quantum particle, it's changed. Meaning, at some point in time, it's a value, 0.43. Well, as soon as my circuit goes to measure, hey, are you 0.43? It's changed. It's now 0.76. And so there's this notion in quantum physics of uh, basically superpositioning where you have a likelihood that one particle is going to have a relationship to another particle. And through this uh, go read about quantum entanglement. It's it's a really great way to fall asleep at night. But one of the core concepts of quantum entanglement is that as the particles relate to each other, they pull they polarize. So they they start to take a position 
which we can measure a uh, very high level if you ever uh, remember the unit circle in mathematics, right? Where loosely there's some real component and some um, non-real component that determines where something exists in a two-dimensional space. Multiply that by the four dimensions that represents this qubit particle. Um, and it has some state that we can represent very well in mathematics. Um, but what we're saying is that there are these polarizers that exist where... Imagine the pol uh, the the polarizer is like a is like an air filter, right? Particles come through the air filter, the dirty stuff stays in the filter, and the good particles go out on the other end. Well, with a polarizer, I have these unpolarized photons that haven't been altered in any way in their environment, and they are angled and superpositioned in whatever degree and direction and magnitude that they want to be in. And as I get closer to the the polarizer based on the probability that I look to be in a similar measurement and angle to my polarizer, there is a probability assigned that I will become the polarizer itself. Meaning I'm at a 23 degree angle before I get to the polarizer. And then when I get to the polarizer, because I'm a 23 degree angle, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to become zero degrees and look just like that polarizer. Whereas another photon may come along and it may be at like 87 degrees. So it has a much less likelihood of reverting to this zero degree polarizer that I'm talking about, right? So we say that in, in the traditional mathematical notation, if the photon is at a 45 degree angle, then the probability of it being polarized would be 50% because I have, you know, 45 degrees on either side of that 90 degree angle. Um, so keeping this in mind, um, if we want to know at any given time what the probability of a photon coming out a certain way is, and we try and measure it, we reset the problem immediately. So immediately we're going to polarize to something different. The photon itself is going to look at, uh, different. And likewise, this gets us to a deeper understanding in engineering that you wouldn't be able to copy a qubit, right? Imagine how computers work today. We copy bits left and right like it, like, like you wouldn't believe, right? Modern day computing relies on copying the copies of my bits over and over and over again. Imagine working in a computational model where you can't copy what you're storing. I mean, that's insane based on the way we think about classical computer models today, right? So we might be able to take advantage of other classical computer science notions like XORing bits or doing things that indirectly um, manipulate the environment without us directly observing a measurement. Um, but we wouldn't really end up with what the ideal end state is, which is to have two independent qubits, each in some state that's the probability of being a zero plus the probability of being one. Instead, I'm going to end up with some two entangled qubits that are in a state that is a different measurement. Um, so lots of classical problems where when we talk about just fundamental classical computing, the bits don't behave the way they do today. The math doesn't behave the way it does today. Um, and so, you know, we can describe today a lot of the physics with math notation that has existed since the early 20th century. But the engineering concepts for how to leverage that math into a sane computing model is not really all there. So just just on a fundamental mathematical level, we're still struggling with 
what does the operating system look like that's going to allow us to leverage uh, quantum computing? Not counting that these small things that we do know today require an order of energy inefficiency and a order of computational efficiency that is just not practical. So the worst case scenario that they postulate in this argument is that, quote, some level funded evil entity is going to throw a trillion dollars at the problem in secret and create a quantum computer that can break 2048-bit RSA and surprise the world. Suddenly, everything on the internet can be impersonated. And so all cryptocurrency can be spent by the bad guys. So the good guys must have to try at least as hard as the bad guys to build them. And there can be valuable spinoff technologies here that allow us to solve advanced problems without solving quantum computer computing, right? So quantum computing isn't um, itself um, the thing we have to solve, but it's the threat that makes us encouraged to solve problems that we previously weren't interested in solving. It's very much like NASA, right? We've gotten some estimate on the order of magnitude of between 600 billion and a trillion dollars of economic output of spinoff technologies that have resulted in the main goal of we want to go to the moon, right? So the main goal was we wanted to go to the moon. In this case, we actually found a practical way to do it. Um, and as a result, all this spinoff technology and research happened around that problem. In this case, the moon landing we're talking about is quantum computing. It's not nearly as feasible as the moon landing if the moon landing sounded infeasible at the time. Um, and then on top of that, um, we are incentivizing people to try and solve the problems prior to us having this worst case quantum computing model. Well, it turns out one of the common misconceptions is that um, with quantum computing, we have to have a realistic quantum computer that stands the chance of attacking this problem before we can solve and secure the doomsday scenario, right? So in the interest of time, I'm not going to talk about all the other use cases people have proposed for quantum computing today that just aren't practical, but people think are, oh, this is what quantum is going to do for me in 50 years. Honestly, one of the takeaways you'll get at the end of this conversation is that the only real thing we're talking about here are there are two use cases. One is I want to use a quantum computer to someday break encryption. And two, I want to deal with very specific problems in computer science that have quadratic-like behavior because quantum has a unique ability to try and solve and optimize problems that are, are quadratic complexity. And again, assuming we resolve the other problems with quantum computing the way it looks today, we would then be able to apply it to um, quadratic complexity problems in classical computing that would be much, much more efficient. Okay, all that's out of the way. So what's the takeaway? Um, we should be solving the problem now that quantum computing could pose to us at least 10 years or so before quantum computing may actually exist. So the goal we want to set for ourselves is rather than the moon landing being we have quantum computing, let's set a spinoff goal of we need to replace public key algorithms at least 10 years prior to when quantum computing may theoretically exist. So if we say at the earliest possible date, it's 2030, that means in the now 2020 next year, we should start evaluating ways that uh, we can redesign and replace public key algorithms to nullify the ability for quantum computing to sit there and guess probabilities of what our private key is. That's the takeaway. Um, in order to do that, we need to get 
more studied and socialized people more into realizing a simple truth that quantum folks will not want to talk to, to you about, which is that there are classical approaches to solving public key infrastructure security that have nothing to do with quantum computing that can fix the underpinning mechanism that quantum computing would seek to attack so that we've solved the problem before the quantum thing shows up. So I, I'm going to, because the ramble wheel has gone for quite a long time on today's show, <laughs> I am not going to go into what those classical algorithm development looks like. I will tell you, it is a fun read to go learn about what are some of the classical approaches we're taking to defeat quantum computing in ways that it won't be able to catch up with unless there's a radical change in the ability to manufacture quantum computing and understand an operating system that works with quantum bits. Um, and so over the next 10 years, expect people to be looking very seriously and not just for quantum computing, but for other reasons, mechanisms to improve on the fundamentals that make up RSA so that in some hypothetical 10 to 1,000 years from now, we don't have a problem. So what you're saying is prepare for something we're not sure we can actually do yet. Yes. But if it does happen, we Get got ready. it covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so super interesting stuff. But like yeah. I said, I, I had never heard so many discrete topics about quantum all wrapped up in a one-hour session that brought in math, physics, practical computer science, engineering, and real-world implications. It was, like I said, one of the best done presentations I've seen in a long time. Um, and the best part is the slides are publicly available, so they're in the show notes. I think you'll enjoy reading them. Um, and if you're an RSA attendee, I don't know if this particular um, session is publicly uploaded because it wasn't a keynote. But you can, um, if you're an RSA member, you should have received a code that will allow you to go back and watch the video if you were at the conference but missed the track session. And I just, it's a highly recommended must go and review. Um, this podcast isn't doing justice to what that talk was. Me sitting in the audience, I took away maybe 20% of what was said. And I had to sit back and go and read and review like we're doing right now to get more of that intuition. And I'm still not at 100% of what's available in those slides by itself. Um, if you're a math person, there's something there. If you, like I said, just really rich content. Uh, and so hats off to the folks at Dell EMC, which was Radia Perlman and Charlie Kaufman. Um, who put that presentation together. Um, it gets my A-plus rating for um, the RSA conference. Christian, do you think fixing the algorithm is is more possible than than quantum? Even, you know, than, oh, absolutely. Than yes. Okay. Yes. We have, we have realistic mechanisms to go about um, setting our paths on the next iteration of enterprise encryption that doesn't involve dealing with quantum in any way. Yeah. Also, you know, you think about in the 30s and the 40s when they were thinking about computing the way we do it today, that seemed light years away, incredibly hard and impossible. They were they were making drawings of things that didn't even exist. Yeah. And yet we have them today. You know, that's a, a hundred. Let's say it's a hundred years ago. Do we give it another hundred and think, you know, when you think when you think of computing that way, and you think of in terms of a hundred years, you kind of go, "Well, that wasn't that long." I mean, it, that went pretty fast when you kind of think about it. A hundred years from now, do do you think we give? You said a hundred or two hundred. 
is it possible that we there's just some things we're not thinking about that could pop up and and change it for quantum? Oh sure, uh, sure. Any any type of realistic advancement in um, nuclear energy that we don't understand today could radically shift the timetables that were presented in this uh, conversation. Um, so if there is a substantial advance in the science, it can radically change the calculus on the engineering, right? We are making a best case effort of what does quantum engineering look like based on what physicists tell us are the properties of these things, right? It's very rare you're going to find a physicist who's also trying to write the operating system, right? You're going to try and find a computer scientist to write the operating system and a physicist to understand the theory that powers the, the bits flowing, um, through whatever that processor is. So, um, again, the, the two biggest things that stick out, regardless of all the engineering challenges, um, you ha you need an extremely specific temperature environment and a, an extremely um, intense energy output to do quantum and the engineering model we've postulated today. Um, if one of those two factors change, even just one of them, we get to redo the whole calculus on what the engineering timetables look like. Is, is it colder than space? Could, yeah. could, could realistically. I mean, yeah. Uh, what I hear you asking is, can we uh, put a quantum computer on a rocket in an asteroid belt and have it stream back data through a satellite and leverage the coldness of the great outdoors? Um, maybe, um, we're forgetting this little concept in physics called radiation, yeah. which is uh, we, it took us an incredible amount of things to shield classical computers from the level of radiation exposed to. Um, I'd be very interested to know what types of complexities you get with um, not only shielding from radiation, but again, uh, protecting from radioactive elements with um, technical equipment on like the international space station or so forth, you're looking to preserve zero or one, it's a very nice and comfortable and happy state. <laughs> I do not want to be the guy trying to figure out how I signed some little certificate to some guy back in mission control saying, ah, yes, sir, I can absolutely tell you that this qubit that's 0.4372891 has not moved in the slightest due to radiation. Like, good luck. Yeah. Um, so... Let's, maybe the movie, yeah. maybe the movement of numbers becomes part of the algorithm that, you know, maybe who knows, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess we don't really know. I, I think it's one, I'm super proud of you for getting quadratic, the word quadratic <laughs> in here. That is all, all math nerds love. Quadratic. I have not heard the word quadratic in a long time. So thank you for, for bringing that in. And um, it is fun to kind of think about the future and what this could be in the future of computing. And, and I kind of, I heard you say we may have to rewrite the operating system in some in some regards. In other words, the way we do computing today may not be the same way based on machines coming in the future. And we we think through our solutions with zeros and ones today, and yep. and the future may or may not uh, live in that same world. Mm -hmm. And yep. so it just kind of requires a rethinking. It's exciting. I sometimes wish I could leap ahead and see where they. Yeah. See where they, uh, Wouldn't we they all land? like to know? Yeah. 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 No, it'd, be, it'd be super great. Well, I think with that, we'll call it a wrap. Oh, we've got some other topics. Maybe we can come back to in a couple of weeks. And, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, and, we'll definitely circle up. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Cover those as well. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it? 
No, um, clearly you can tell by my energy level that it was a fun week. Um, and this was just, you know, we, we got through two sessions in a one hour podcast, right. And that was after me synthesizing and really reflecting on the content that I received. Um, imagine going through this level of dense content back to back for a whole week. Um, and it's, it Mm. is somewhat, uh, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you, you're lucky if you walk away with 10, it really, the, the value added is having to go back and make sure you really understood what you walked away with. And, and again, as one person, if I'm a hundred percent at RSA from seven in the morning to five o'clock in the afternoon, um, I'm still at the best case scenario, seeing 15% of what the conference has to offer by the time I get back on a plane. Right. That's pretty great to know though. There's that much great yeah, stuff. It's there. absolutely insane. You know? I yeah. mean, there is something yeah. for everyone. Um, doing that was a Microsoft, uh, <laughs> Microsoft, that was the microphone doing. Um, but yeah, really, uh, stunning just, you know, in 20 years, how much the community has been built out. I mean, we've been doing this for, I think 23 years is how long RSA has been going on. Um, so that much content and, you know, it sounds like a long time, but the fact that we've amassed that much content and made this like a regular annual production that like people do in their sleep in, in some respects in terms of planning, organizing and sending out the smart people. Um, really quite remarkable. Yeah, no, super cool. What was your, uh, did you get, did you get out in San Francisco at all? Did you get to see anything cool while you were in the, um, the city by the Bay? Yeah, we did some food trucks and, um, there's a lot of RSA, uh, corporate events that they hold for, all the food, all the networking. So we, we got to see a fair bit of the city. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it at this point. Um, I have not done some of the super touristy things yet in, in SF. So at some point I will get to that. Um, of course, I learned that if you don't want to um, be immediately identified as a tourist, you don't say San Fran, you say SF. Um, so I, I continue to be educated as I go out there. Um, but I, I probably have more to do on that front. Yeah. You can say Frisco. The, uh, some, I got to meet you out there sometime. You know, that's my, that's kind of my home turf and, yeah. uh, and I know it pretty well. So there are some great, the, the days I got to go out for Oracle conferences, uh, I think four or five years in a row, I was out there just magical. Of course, visiting the Bay area. I grew up in San Jose. Yeah. Um, pretty great. So there's, there's so much tech there, but, uh, super cool. Well, right we'll on. remind, we'll remind Christian. Thanks for, for doing that. We'll remind everyone if they haven't subscribed yet, get it done. If you're catching this for the very first time, maybe you came in on one of our many places that we post it. We've got a great community going on, including a brand new discord group. Discord. Boom. Look at I'm that. I'm a super so. fan of discord. So if you haven't heard my rant about discord yet, um, I really like, there's this place called Facebook that has like repeatedly died inside myself. The more I have to read about just all the terrible nasty. So if you're still on Facebook, I I'm really, I'm sorry for you. Um, at this point, the only way I use Facebook is, um, I must be authenticated with a hardware token. Every time I use it, uh, we'll only use it in an incognito window. will not persist any cookies or sessions. Um, do not post, do not create content. I read very briefly and then I'm gone. So if you're looking for me there, very sorry for you. Um, you should come to a hot platform called Discord where 
I'm much more likely to answer you. It's much easier for me to follow the content and the conversation. And I don't have to hear these huge sucking noises of Mark Zuckerberg flying down the chute from his conference room to his garage as he flees the uh, media frenzy over whatever his latest snafu is. Humorously, you've got me on a rant, Jim. I'm so I do. Sorry. I keep going. This um, is great. <laughs> humorously, uh, Big headlines this week was Mark Zuckerberg has the epiphany that he must go to um, private, encrypted, uh, small living room-like community conversations as the future of social media. And it's like, um, number one, super, super amazing that that's the turnaround we're seeing from this guy a year later. Uh, number two, he's definitely missed the train. Like, I don't know what planet he's lived on, but like signal and half a million other competitors are dominating in that space. So the best play he has here is somehow using whatever reputation is left of Facebook, which I can't say as much um, to somehow get into a space that he has notoriously built a business model. That is the antithesis of this space, which is public, public data, selling of the data, uh, visibility of the data, having global conversations to global audiences. And now he wants to be the provider of the the sexy, encrypted, private, one-to-one, small FDR fireside chat-like environment. I mean, for lack of a better word, complete BS from this guy, right? Like if we want to talk about reputational damage the company has incurred on its own, um, I really am a skeptic when it comes to believing in the 180 pivot and whatever new business model they're going to come up with to somehow be as competitive or, or meet the bottom line of what their business model was in today's world. Um, so I hate to say it folks, but um, Facebook has gone the way of the Dodo and the dinosaur. Um, and I encourage you to use real healthy messaging and social networking pro- platforms. Um, and discord is one of them. So um, we now have an average guy channel with about, I don't know. We're, we're building uh, 30, 35, maybe 35. Yeah. And I, I see it. I see a trickle of people as they realize that there is this new platform that they can unshackle themselves with. Um, <laughs> so I encourage you to start a liberation movement and join our discord channel. It's the, super it, you can, uh, you can find it pretty easily. The average guy.tv slash discord. I think I finally got an, un, uh, a link that wouldn't expire. Uh, out there. So head out there. I, I see several of you uh, have joined us even this week coming over from Home Gadget Geeks. Great way to do it. We're st- we'll still keep, it's, as much as Christian rails on it, we'll still keep the Facebook group. I'm out there quite a bit and we'll we'll continue to do that if, if we want to do it that way. That's there until everybody stops talking there. But join us over on the Facebook so- or on the uh, Discord side. We'd love to have you over there. Don't forget uh, the AverageGuy.tv powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and people that you know their rants. And so head over to Maple Maple (laughs) Grove partners.com. We welcome your questions, comments, and contributions. If you have anything you want to send to us, Jim at the average guy.tv, although just send them to Christian, Christian at the average guy.tv. He will be all over them. You can track me down on Twitter at Jay Collison. He's for Whisperer. We hope you enjoyed it tonight. I know uh, we went a little long, but we got Quadratic and FDR in the same conversation tonight. Very exciting, guys. Pretty Very great. Exciting. I'm just going to say. We'll, uh, we'll welcome you back to the next one of these that we do. we got plenty of stuff coming up. We're done. Say goodbye. Good night. Good night.